Mark chapter 8, verses 1 to 30. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from afar away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again and went to the other side. Now, they had forgotten to bring bread and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. I love hearing different people's testimonies. Uh, to me, nobody's testimony is ever boring. A uh, testimony 
is somebody's story about what happened. What, what was the process that led that person to first of all believe in Jesus Christ and then to become his disciple? Now, for some people, this has been an instantaneous thing where all of a sudden God revealed himself to them in some way, either through the scriptures or through a preacher or an evangelist or some other way. All of a sudden, their eyes were opened and they believed in Jesus. They repented of their sins and they handed control of their life over to Jesus because they just knew in their heart that Jesus is Lord. But for others, it's been a process that's taken years or maybe even decades where God keeps touching this person's life at various times and the whole time God has been drawing them to himself and he's been revealing himself to them. But throughout that whole process, that, that person's heart has remained hardened and they just haven't yet seen. But gradually, over months, years and decades, they begin to see. And then they begin to see a bit more clearly until finally their eyes are fully opened and they get it. Now, you know, when Jesus called his first disciples, straight away they dropped everything to follow him. And, and we might go, yep, there you go, there's a good example of instantaneous believers. But no, they weren't. It took a long time for them to see clearly. In fact, it wasn't until Jesus had been raised from the dead that their eyes were finally and fully opened so that they could finally see clearly who this Jesus bloke really was. I mean, they'd been travelling with him for years, never knowing who he was. In our reading today, we're about halfway through the pages of the Gospel of Mark. But in terms of its timeline, at this point in the Gospel, the disciples have been with Jesus for years, and it's now only a matter of months that they've got left with him. Only a matter of months now until Jesus is crucified. Now, that's the way this gospel's written. It, it goes really fast at the start, and then it starts to slow down. And it slows down, and it slows down. The closer we get to the cross, the slower it takes it. So, so far, it's been a bit like this. Immediately, Jesus went here. Immediately, Jesus went there. Immediately, Jesus did this. Immediately, Jesus did that. In one verse, he might be on this side of the lake. Next verse, he's over on that side of the lake. One verse, he's on this side of the country. Next verse, he's, he's on the shores of the Mediterranean Sea. But from here on in, the Gospel of Mark is going to begin slowing down. As Jesus begins his journey to Jerusalem, it slows down. And as he's put on trial, it, it slows down even more. And as he's crucified, it slows down even more. Right? So we are this far into the gospel. The disciples have only got a matter of months left with Jesus until the Passover and crucifixion. And they still have no idea who Jesus is. Does that matter? Do we really need to know who Jesus is? If Jesus died for us and we know that he died for us, do we really need to know who, who he is? To right it matters. We cannot become true disciples of Jesus until we know who Jesus really is. You see, if Jesus was just a man, albeit a good man, if Jesus was just a nice man who was executed by those nasty people who, had, who held the power, 
well, then the story of Jesus would simply be the story of a martyr for a cause. And the story of somebody whose death resulted in an ideal. And how we responded to that would merely become a matter of, well, we could follow this same ideal if we want to. And it would become a matter of preference. But the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that changes everything. I mean, why would we submit ourselves, even unto death, to a human who died a couple of thousand years ago? There'd be no point. But the fact that Jesus lives, and the fact that while we are merely human, Jesus is divine, right? Jesus is God, that changes everything. We can have every confidence in Jesus as Lord, and not just by name, not just by title. We don't just call Jesus Lord, but Jesus is Lord in the true sense of the word. We can trust in Jesus. We can trust him with our life. We can trust him with our death. We can trust him with our present and with our future. We can trust him with our eternity because he's the one who holds eternity in his hands. He's the one who has all power and all authority. He's the one who controls all things. He's the one who judges the wicked and the faithless. And he's the one who gives life to the faithful. And because he is all of this and he is just and loving and kind and merciful, because he is God, King of kings, Lord of lords, that's why we willingly give our very lives to him because he is our Lord. He's our everything. Now, in doing this, we're not making Jesus something that he's not. Jesus already is Lord. We simply acknowledge who he is and bow before him as he deserves. Right. Now, with that introduction out of the way, let's go to our reading. Today, in chapter 8, Jesus feeds the 4,000. It's not so long ago that we were here listening about when he fed the 5,000. Now, with the feeding of the 5,000, um, we're told that Jesus had compassion on the crowds because they were like sheep without a shepherd, right? And, and what was his solution? He taught them. Well, with the feeding with the 4,000, he's obviously already shown them a fair bit of compassion because he's already been teaching them for three days. Uh, you think my sermon's along. Let's, let's try a three-dayer. But you know what? When, when you love Jesus and when you love his word, if the Holy Spirit is in the teaching, a long sermon doesn't seem very long at all. You know, when I was going to Bible college, they said, oh, never talk more than 10 minutes. Because after 10 minutes, nobody takes anything more in. And I'm thinking, golly, I don't know. When, when I listen to somebody, I can just keep on listening and listening. Um, with the advent of Netflix and other streaming services, there's a new phenomenon called binge-watching. Have you heard of that? Binge-watching? Okay, so for those who aren't in the know, uh, when a, a TV series gets... Hello, a bit of exchange getting happening here. Um, 
when a TV series gets recorded, it's usually designed so that you watch one episode per week and they keep re releasing the next episode at each week. But sometimes they release a whole series um, onto Netflix all at once. Um, they might even release two or three seasons of it all at once. And so people will sit down and they can, instead of watching a movie, they can watch three, four or five episodes of this series. Binge watching, that's what it's called. They just can't get enough of the episodes because one episode leaves you hanging, designed to make, you, make sure that you come back next week. Well, if it's there available, well, I want to know what comes next. Binge watching. Now, this might be a new thing for television viewers, but craving spiritual teaching, that's not a new thing. It's been around a mighty long time. Um, there were days when I used to spend 12 or 14 hours on a tractor, and now this, this is going to date me. I used to listen to cassettes, uh, not video cassettes, which some of you might be familiar with. You'd probably have to go to a museum now to find an audio cassette. Um, my <laughs> And while you're in the museum, you can see Roy with it, okay. <laughs> um, my mum used to get these, these cassettes from a pommy preacher called David Pawson. Uh, audio cassettes, they were mailed to her, boxer cassettes at a time. And she'd stock these up for years, and, and when I got old enough, I'd be out on the tractor, and what am I going to do? I can either listen to the ABC, or I might actually start listening to these. And once I started, I couldn't stop. I'd, take, I'd just devour them. I'd take a whole box of them. There might be 10 or 12 cassettes in a box, 45 minutes apiece, and just listen to one after the other, just taking in the Word of God. Now, some people have told me they've done a similar thing with the Bush Disciples podcast. They listen to it as they drive or while they're on the tractor. Uh, if you want to binge watch it, you can even get, if you've got an Apple TV, get it on Vimeo and do some binge watching there. I'm not sure why you'd want to. When God gives you a hunger to hear his word, when there's Holy Spirit-inspired teaching available that you can listen to, you can listen to it for hours. I, I've done it. And that's what the crowds did. They listened to Jesus for three days straight. Um, and so he had compassion on them, not because they needed more teaching, but because after that they're hungry and he's going to send them home, and a lot of them lived a long way from home. He's worried that they're going to faint, so he, so he wanted to feed them. And his disciples say, well, what do you want us to do about it? I mean, it's like they'd forgotten about the feeding of the 5,000. I mean, duh, it's obvious what he wants them to do about it. You know, some people think that Jesus is a one-hit wonder. Uh, as I was reading commentaries for, for, on this very miracle, I, I, some of the... Sometimes some people had the opinion that, oh, no, this is just a different account of the same miracle that happened. No, it's not. It's entirely different. And then Jesus goes on to say later on, what about the feeding of the 5,000? What about the feeding of the 4,000? It's not two separate. Uh, it's not the one incident remembered by two different people. It was two separate incidents. Um, but if Jesus can do it once, he can do it again. And so it, it's a pretty much a replay of what happened with the feeding of the 5,000. How many loaves have you got? Seven. He gets the crowds to sit down. He blesses the bread and the fish. They distribute the food. Everyone eats as much as they can. They gather up the leftovers, seven baskets full. And they don't hang around. Once again, just like last time. Immediately, 
They get into the boat. Jesus gets into his boat with his disciples and they went to the district of Dalmanutha. Pop quiz. What famous miracle of Jesus is the district of Dalmanutha remembered for? Anyone? Come on, come on. What famous miracle is the district of Dalmanutha remembered for? What did you say, Alan? What did you say, sorry? Exactly, yes, you knew, right, nothing. No famous miracles happened at Dalmanutha. <sighs> I knew you'd get it, I knew you'd get it. No faith in Delmanutha. There's no famous miracles happened there. This is what happened. Verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Isn't that just so typical? Eh? Jesus has been doing wondrous signs left, right and centre. He just fed the 4,000 with nearly nothing and gathered up more than what they started with. But that wasn't enough for the Pharisees. They wanted to demand a sign. Aren't so many people like that today? Have you ever heard it? I'm sure you've heard it said. If God wants me to believe in him, all he's got to do is give me a sign. All God has to do is do this and then I'll believe in him. No, they won't. No, they won't. Sign seeking is the opposite of faith. If I was trying to use a more academic word, I'd say sign-seeking is the antithesis of faith. It's the opposite. It's only those who have hardened hearts who demand another sign. The, hard, sorry, the hard-hearted are those who refuse to see. It's those who, even when the evidence is right there before them, they refuse to accept it. In fact, they'll believe almost any alternative rather than believing the simple God-honest truth. By the way, Jesus had every ability to give those Pharisees a sign. Um, but when the Pharisees asked Jesus for a sign from heaven, they did it to test him. This was another temptation of Jesus. The Greek word that gets used here for test, right, they did it to test Jesus, is the same Greek word used for when Satan tested Jesus out in the wilderness. Right? This was another temptation for Jesus. This was just another way of getting, to Je getting Jesus to do it a different way to what was intended. It was a temptation. And many people today might have the attitude, of, if God wants me to believe in him, all he has to do is give me a sign. It's that simple. No, it's not that simple. Because that sort of belief isn't faith. God wants us to respond in faith. And when they ask for another sign from heaven, Jesus responds, well, it was almost a response of exasperation. We're told that Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit. <sighs> Yeah, you know, there's a couple of places in the Gospel of Mark, two, two that I know of, where he sighed. One of those 
we had, I think it was last week, when we were in chapter 7, and Jesus was healing the, the deaf and dumb man. Jesus sighed. It was a big job. It's a difficult thing to heal somebody who's deaf and dumb. But this was an even bigger job. Jesus didn't just sigh, he sighed deeply. There is a, like there's a prefix in front of the word sigh, which means um, above a sigh, bigger than a sigh. <sighs> Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. There's no point in asking for another sign. There's already enough evidence of God working in this world, and there's already enough evidence of God working in the hearts of his children. You know, we, we tend to think the big things. Oh, if God was to heal somebody right here in front of us, that'd be a massive miracle, and that'd help me to believe. But you know what a bigger miracle of God is? It's when he changes a heart. When he completely turns somebody around. When he takes away their old life and gives them a new one. There's already enough evidence of God doing this in the world. Don't ask for another sign. You're not going to get another sign. It takes faith. Let's move on. Have you ever noticed that when you have a guilty conscience, now I'm just, I'm just assuming that you've had a guilty conscience at some stage, um, when you have a guilty conscience, you see references to what your conscience is troubling you about, even when that's not the intent. Right? So, for example, you might be sitting in church, listening to the sermon, and it feels like that dastardly preacher is preaching right at you yet again. And you go, how does he even know about that? How, how does he even know that I've been struggling with this issue and he's picked that as the topic for today and he's looking straight at me while he's saying it? Well, I'm just going to let you know a little secret. The preacher doesn't know about it. And he never did. There's been times when somebody's come up to me after church and said, wow, how did you know about that? I mean, this is the issue that I've been dealing with and that's what your message was about and it's just like you were just speaking straight to me. And I assure them, no, no, it's not my message and if there's anything good that's come out of this, it's God who's done it. And they leave going, wow, God's done something amazing for me and, I've, and I feel, wow, God's done something amazing in spite of me. But then after they're gone, I start thinking about what they've told me. I go... Hang on a minute. That doesn't relate at all to that issue they've been dealing with. They weren't listening to me. I, they didn't get it. But God's done his work in their heart because they've sort of had this issue on their conscience and they just saw it coming through. Well, something a bit like that happened here with the disciples in the boat. It must have been their responsibility to restock the bread supply before the boat trip and they obviously never got around to it. And they're out on the water and Jesus says to them, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And the disciples go, leaven, yeast, bread. Oh, oh we forgot the bread. Jesus knows about it. And now he's making a point of it. Oh, we forgot the bread. Oh. 
And Jesus is there, what on earth are you talking about? Why are you lot worried about forgetting the bread? Don't you get it yet? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? I mean, they'd seen the feeding of the 5,000. They'd just not long finished the feeding of the 4,000. These blokes are the ones who had gathered up all of the leftovers afterwards. And they're still worried about bread. I mean, if they truly knew who it was who was in the boat there with them, they'd know that Jesus wasn't worried about bread. And if they knew who Jesus was, they wouldn't be worried about bread themselves. All right, so if Jesus wasn't talking about them forgetting the bread, what did Jesus mean when he said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod? I mean, that seems a strange thing for a start. Why would he lump these two groups of all people together? I mean, the, the, the Pharisees, they were the religious purity movement with all of their strict ceremonial and purity rules and regulations, and they hated the Romans. Whereas Herod, he was the puppet king of the Romans. Essentially, Herod and his followers were collaborators. And Herod and his followers, the Herodians, were all about political power, personal indulgences, and licentious living. That they were almost the exact opposites of the Pharisees. So what was the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod? What, what did they have in common? Well, we talked about leaven a couple of months ago, I think. Uh, when somebody, back then, they didn't have their nice little packets of yeast like what we have today. Um, making bread, you would keep a little bit of the old dough aside to keep the leaven alive, that, to keep the yeast part alive. And so when you made a batch of dough, you take a little piece of that dough and you put it aside in a jar somewhere in the dark and just let it go old and mouldy. And that way, next time you're making dough, you'd take a little piece of that leaven and you'd mix it in all through that new batch of dough and that would make the bread rise. And biblically, leaven was a symbol for a little bit of evil that if left unchecked, it had the potential to mix through and infect a whole community. It's a pervasive influence that could turn a whole community rotten. And the Pharisees and the Herodians had two things in common. They both demanded a sign, right? So the Pharisees, they tried to tempt Jesus, give us a sign. And in Luke chapter 23, we're told that when Jesus was on trial and he was sent before Herod, well, Herod was really glad because he'd heard about this bloke Jesus and he, he wanted an opportunity for a long time. He'd been looking for an opportunity to see Jesus do some miracles. And so here's his chance. And he tried to use Jesus like a performing monkey, right? Come and do some miracles for me. But Jesus didn't, of course. In fact, he wouldn't even say a word to him. And the second thing they had in common was both groups together had secretly plotted to have Jesus destroyed. These blokes were so false. They didn't want a sign at all. Here they are in chapter 8 asking for a sign when back in chapter 3 they'd already made their judgment about Jesus. 
And they already had their plan to destroy him. And Jesus is saying, watch out for people like that. And that's a warning for us too. Watch out for those who pretend to have an interest in, in the Christian faith when their secret intent is to tear down Christ and to tear down his disciples. Beware of a false teacher who brings strange ideas into a church. Don't tolerate untruth. Don't tolerate even a subtle modification of God's word. That can become a leaven, something that pervades throughout a whole community. It's happening in the Christian church today. A few little lies get told here, a new little heresy gets introduced there, and after a while, people get used to it. And eventually it becomes the accepted norm. Watch out for those who seem to be showing an interest, but secretly they've got their own agenda. And it's an agenda to destroy the church. That's what he's saying. Right. So they've had this discussion in the boat. Jesus is saying to them, don't you get it yet? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Right? He's talking about spiritual deafness and spiritual blindness. And then when they arrive in Bethsaida, a physically blind man is brought to Jesus for him to heal. And this is what happens. Jesus takes him by the hand and he leads him out of the village. Then Jesus spat in his eyes. That's probably not uh, normal ophthalmologist type um, treatment. But then he laid his hands on them and he said, do you see anything? And the blind man looked up and he said, yeah, I can see people. They must have been very clear though because he said that they look like trees walking around. So Jesus has another go. He laid his hands on his eyes again and this time the blind man opened his eyes wide and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Now what's going on here? Uh, this is the only healing of Jesus that I can think of where it was like a two-stage thing. Was this and is this an example of how God doesn't always give immediate healing and sometimes it takes time? Sometimes healing is a gradual thing. Is that the lesson for us? Maybe. Or was it a lesson that we should never be content with a half-answered prayer? Don't give up praying until that prayer is fully answered. Maybe. You know what I see? I see a lovely example of a physical healing that Jesus did. He made the blind man to see. And this event that did happen is like a parable. What Jesus did physically in the blind man is like an example of what's going on spiritually in the disciples. The first time the blind man opened his eyes, we're told that he looked up and he could see something, but it was obviously all blurry still. 
The second time in the Greek, it actually says that this time he opened his eyes wide, right? It's a different terminology for opening your eyes. One is sort of like a quick glance up, and the other is like, wow, opened his eyes wide. And the New Revised Standard Version tells us that this time he looked intently. That's the way they translated it. You getting this? The first time he had a bit of a look, and he saw a little bit but it wasn't clear. He could see stuff going on. He could see movement. And so he assumed, well, that must be people, but it looks more like trees. The second time he had a proper look. Anybody familiar with a bit of a look as opposed to a proper look? Um, I'm an expert on this. Let me give you a glimpse into the Brumpton household. Robin, I can't find my keys. Have you looked for them? Of course I've looked for them. I've been looking for them for half an hour. Where have you looked? I've looked everywhere. Well, where did you leave them? I left them on the bench and that's the first place I looked. You must have moved them. They're not there. All right, so Michael's had a Michael look and he can't find them. And so Robin comes out and in about 30 seconds, she's looked in about four or five of the same places that Michael's looked and she says, what are these? And jingles them in front of me. Where'd you find them? They were on the kitchen bench. I looked there. You must have hid them. I didn't hide them. They were there, glaring you in the face the whole time. All right. um, that's a common occurrence in our household. Have I described anybody else's house? No, only mine. Oh, a couple of them? I remember my grandfather. Let me do an impression of my grandfather. What are you looking for, Granddad? Oh, I can't find my glasses. They're on your head, Grandad. Okay. It must be hereditary a little bit. It, it's, it's, I think it's a malady that we suffer. Uh, sometimes the keys are completely invisible to me. It's a mystery. And here, the blind man looked, but he didn't have a proper look. The second time around, he opened his eyes wide. He looked intently. And everything was clear. This is a very practical example of what's been going on in the disciples spiritually. The disciples have been hanging out with Jesus for years by this point. And they couldn't help but start to see a little bit. But they're not looking properly. Their hearts are hard. And it's not clear to them who Jesus really is. Now, thankfully, Jesus didn't give up on them. And Jesus doesn't give up on us. Next week, we're going to get to where Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ. Only gradually do they see. And even at that point, when, when Peter realises that Jesus is the Christ, is what Peter understands as the Christ is so wrong itself. And it's not until Jesus is raised from the dead that his eyes will be fully opened. And he'll understand fully. So let's come back to where we began. Sometimes it takes years or even decades for someone to fully open their eyes and see Jesus clearly. They know that there's something in this Jesus thing, but they just don't get it. Now let's, let's not mess around and try to avoid offending anyone. Um, 
Jesus came straight out with it, and I think we should as well. When his disciples were slow to see, the root cause of their slowness to get it was their hardened hearts. And Jesus named that. They had eyes, but they weren't seeing. They understood a bit about Jesus, but they still weren't getting it. And that's what a hardened heart does. A hardened heart will just have a bit of a cursory look at Jesus. But then it'll continue to see what it, what it itself wants to see. And so a hardened heart is a very real barrier to faith because it tries to shape Jesus into our view of what we want Jesus to be. And this is how a softened heart is different. A softened heart is a heart of faith. And it's when we open our eyes and look intently and we see Jesus for who he really is and we accept the truth about who Jesus really is. We need to stop imagining what we want Jesus to be and we need to start seeing him for who he really is. Take a proper look. Have a proper look through the eyes of faith and see who Jesus is for real. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and believe. A lot of people have their own idea about what they think, who they think Jesus is. Some will just think that he's just a nice fella. Um, somebody who had some good advice for living that we should follow that. The disciples thought, even when they thought he was the Christ, they still thought that this Messiah is the one who is going to come and lead some kind of political uprising and rebellion. But when we realise that Jesus, who he really is, that he's the Lord God Almighty, that changes everything with how we respond to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ came into this world and revealed himself to us. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes so that we would see clearly. Lord, sometimes we, our eyes, we only open them a little bit. Lord, I ask that you would open our eyes wide so that we would see who Jesus truly is that we would accept it and respond to him as our Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.